family. It's great to see you on this rainy morning. I'm glad you're here as we worship the Lord together this morning. Over the last 11 weeks through our journey of the Gospel of John, we've been looking at Jesus' conversation with his disciples on the Thursday night, on the night when he was betrayed, the night that he was going to be arrested, the day before his crucifixion. Over these last 11 weeks, we've seen Jesus talking to his disciples in the upper room, having a conversation with them. And that came to an end last week. Because we saw over the last two weeks in particular is his disciples are getting prepared to be sent to some very difficult days. Jesus lets them see they can have peace and they can have joy even in those difficult days. As they approach him going to the cross, they approach all that's going to happen over the next three days. They can have peace and joy. And we've seen for us as well as his disciples, his followers, that you and I can have peace and joy by God's grace no matter what our circumstances are as well. Well, that behind us, all that remains now before Jesus is arrested is his prayer for himself and for his disciples then and now. And so we begin this morning for the next several weeks as Jesus' prayer for himself and for his disciples as he's preparing to go to the cross. So if you would find John 17 in your copy of God's Word or on your Bible app, we're going to be looking at John, the beginning of John 17 this morning. What we're coming to here is the longest of all of Jesus' recorded prayers. There's no prayer of Jesus in the Scriptures longer than this particular one. This prayer goes by different names. Some people call this the high priestly prayer because Jesus himself is our great high priest, and we see him interceding for us. It's also been called the greatest prayer that's ever been prayed on earth. It's also been called a prayer of consecration, consecration meaning to be set apart. Jesus himself is being set apart for getting ready to go to the cross the very next day. It's also him setting apart his disciples, consecrating them for the task that it lays ahead for them. As we get into John 17 this morning, I want to remind us this prayer is not isolated. This prayer is very much a follow-up to all that Jesus has been teaching, John 13 to 16, in the upper room with his disciples on that Thursday evening. Everything he's been saying is going to happen and is coming, he now prays about to the Father. And so there's much for us to learn as he commits his way to the Father and commits us into the Father's hands as well. We'll see in John 17 over these several weeks much about God and much about what his plan is for us as well. One of the beautiful things for us as we get into this prayer in John 17, it helps us see some big picture things in terms of what is most important. It helps us understand why God does some of what he does. And so it's a fascinating prayer for us. In particular this morning, as we begin the beginning of this prayer, we're going to see the big picture reason of why God saved us, why God chose to rescue us from our sins. So with that in mind, I want to ask you before we get into our text this morning, why did God save you and save me? Why did God in his kindness to us rescue us from our sins and give us eternal life? What is God up to? What is God doing in all of this. Well, a lot of times we give the answer, well, God saved me because I'm a sinner. Well, God saved me, I have no hope in and of myself. And God saved me so I wouldn't go to hell. Well, friends, those are true, but those aren't ultimate. Those are true things, but they're not the most important reason. And this text is going to drive us to some of the big picture issues of what is most important. And particularly in this text, from why God chose to rescue us in the first place. So the main thing I want you to see as we get through John 17 this morning is simply this. God calls us to know him for his own glory. God calls us to know Him for His own glory. He calls us to know Him. This is another way of describing belief that we've been seeing. God calls us to believe, to know Him, not for our sake, but for His own glory. Because there's something much, much bigger than your story or my story. There's something much bigger going on in terms of our salvation. So with that in view, we come to John 17. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 8. I'm going to ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the Word of God. What a treasure we have. God has not hidden Himself from us, but revealed Himself to us. John, John 17, I'm starting in verse 1. I'm reading out the English Standard Version. <clears throat> when Jesus has spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, 
to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray we would treasure these words this morning to realize that as the Lord Jesus talked to you, Father God, you've let us listen into this conversation. Now I pray, Holy Spirit, that these words would come alive this morning to us, that you would illuminate them and breathe life into them, and they would come into our hearts and our souls and transform us and change us as we see more and more of what it means to believe, as we see more and more of what it means to know you and why in your kindness to us you even saved us in the first place. So God, would you stretch us? Would you challenge us? Would you speak to us and change us through your word? And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So again, I want you to see from this text this morning that God calls us to know him for his own glory. Let's kind of take that apart. Let's see first that God calls us. What does all this mean? Go back to verse 6. And I want us to start there, the idea of God calling us. Jesus said, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. So what has Jesus done? He's talking to the Father about what he's accomplished, what he's done. And what has Jesus done? He has manifested something to us. Now, when was the last time you used the word manifested in your daily conversation, right? Probably not a word you use every day. Maybe you're different than me and you use the word manifest this week. But we don't talk about that normally. So what does it mean to manifest something? It means to make something known. It means to show something. It means to reveal something. Or the definition I like the best, it means to make something clear. So listen to what Jesus is saying here in verse 6. He's saying to the Father, I have made clear, I have revealed something to the people you gave me. And what is it that Jesus has made clear to his people? That is the name of the Father. I have made clear, I've revealed your name. Now we've seen over and over in the Gospel of John, name is more than just the name. Name is a description of a whole person's character and being. It describes and represents the whole person. So what Jesus is saying here to the Father in prayer is, I have made clear and revealed your character, God, all of who you are to the people that you gave me out of the world. Jesus has made clear to us the nature of God. Jesus has made it very plain to us who God is. So friends, why do we believe? If you're in Christ, why do we believe? It's not because we're holier than other people. It's not because we're smarter than other people. It's not because we have more potential. It's not because we even were chosen to be born in a place where it's the gospel. Why do we believe? Because the Father in his kindness gave us to Jesus for Jesus to then reveal himself and reveal the Father to us. And listen to verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. It's not the only place we see this idea of why we're saved, that it's all the Father's work and has absolutely nothing to do with us. Go back to the first two verses of this prayer. John 17, verse 1 and 2. When Jesus has spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Friends, we owe our salvation to God's kindness to us. Our salvation has nothing to do with anything in us, has nothing to do with anything that we do. It's simply God's kindness to us in giving us to Jesus so that Jesus would reveal God 
to us. So God calls us to something, but he calls us to particularly know him. He's not calling us to religion. He's not calling us to moralism. He's not calling us to striving harder and to self-help. He's calling us to know him. And as we've seen all throughout the Gospel of John, belief and knowing God go, go hand in hand here. But there's something fascinating in this text that is so helpful for me, and I pray will be helpful for you, because this text brings a balance for us of what it means to know God. Because if you talk, if you look around Christianity today, particularly in the United States, there's kind of two polar extremes when people talk about knowing God. There's a group, when they talk about knowing God, all they mean are propositional truths about God. Knowing your theology, getting all your theology right, dotting every I and crossing every T correctly. It's all about information about who God is. That's good. We need to know that. But they miss the relational, the intimate, the experiential of knowing God. But just that's an extreme on one side. There's an extreme on the other side as well. And that's groups of Christianity where the stress is all in the experiential, all about experiencing God and feeling God's presence and God speaking to you. And yes, God can do all that. But that is separated from the propositional truth of who God is as revealed in Scripture. And friends, knowing God has to be both. It has to be both knowing who He is, the revealed truths of who God is, as well as the experience of His presence. It is a both and, not an either or. And we will see both of those in this text this morning. When it, God calls us to know Him, He calls us to know certain things about Him. And He calls us to know and experience Him as well. So let's think about that. He calls us to know certain things about him. Friends, we do not follow a God of our own imagination. It's not free for us to invent whatever we want to believe about who God is and what he's done. He's chosen to reveal himself in the pages of Holy Scripture, and we're bound to follow God for who he's revealed himself to be. Look back at verse 6 again. Jesus says, I have manifested your name, his whole being, to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your what? They've kept your word, the words of Jesus, the infallible, completely true words. Jesus has spoken to them very particular truths about who God is. And these people have, he said to the disciples, you have believed, you have obeyed, you have kept this word. One is highlighted right here because verse 7 flows straight out of this. What is one of the words they've believed, one of the words of Jesus they've kept, what's one of the truths they've embraced? Verse 7, now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. To know is to believe certain truths, certain things. And in particular, Jesus is saying, these disciples believe in particular, verse 7 here, that, you have give, that everything I have is given to me from you. They now believe who Jesus is and how he relates to the Father. They now believe what Jesus' mission is. It's a mission that comes from the Father. And so Jesus is trying to make it very clear here that believing in him, knowing him, requires believing certain things about him, certain truths about him. And we see that again in verse 8 that follows. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. So again, even here in verse 8, you see Jesus saying to the Father in prayer, the disciples are now believing particular truths about who I am. They know Jesus and they believe certain things about him. And friends, this idea is so important because we live in a culture that stresses the experiential over truth. How many times have we heard people on TV, whether it's Christian celebrities or whatever, making comments like, you know, I follow Jesus, but I cannot imagine a God who would ever fill in the blank, send people to hell. I can never, yeah, I believe in God, but, but not a God who tells me how I have to live sexually. Or, you know, I've, you know, I know God's word says that, but, you know, God wants me to be happy. Therefore, it's okay if I fill in the blank. That idea is so prevalent in Christian culture of today. But, friends, we cannot and we must not do that. Scripture is very, very clear about who God is and what God requires. And so can I suggest this morning 
that, ca- that God calls us to believe with our minds, and then the emotions and the experience will follow. If we'll believe in our minds these truths that God has revealed from the pages of Scripture of who He is, the emotions, He'll draw the emotions and the feelings as well. We get in trouble when we flip those around. There's a great new book that's come out, particularly for women, and it's actually in our resource center in the hallway from Jen Wilkins called Women of the Word. And she's got a great quote that I love in that book. She says, The heart cannot love what the mind does not know. The heart cannot love what the mind does not know. Friends, faith, knowing God, means we believe certain things about God. And while that is true, we must not stop there. These truths are there not for us to be able to say, I got my theology figured out, or this is great, I know it now, I know who God is. These truths are there to drive us into a relationship with this God that we are knowing about. It is all about a relationship. So again, the balance here in this text, we're called to know certain things about God. We're also called to know God on a personal intimate level. And we see that in this text also. Go to verse 3. It says here, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So in the previous verses, it was about knowing truths about who God is. Now it's about knowing God personally. This includes fellowship with God, trusting in God, experiencing His presence, something very real and very, very personal. God calls us to know who He is, truths about Him, and calls us to experience Him as well in an abiding daily relationship with Him. Friends, the reality is the more we know in our minds about who God is, I pray by God's grace that drives us more and more into knowing and experiencing who he really is. God, this is an incredible invitation God gives us. He's inviting us, he's calling us to know who he is, to about him. He's also inviting us to experience him as well. But friends, as incredible as that invitation is, we must not stop there. Because if one of the dangers in Christianity today is this stressing of letting our mind follow our emotions instead of the other way around, There's an equal danger today in Christianity, and that is we look at the Bible as if we are the main character. We go to the Bible as if it's primarily about us, and looking at the Bible for what God wants for me in this. But that's not why God calls us. God calls us to know Him, to know who He is and to know Him experientially. He calls us to that for His own glory. Now, before we look back at the text, I want to share with you a quote from Matt Chandler. wrote a great book called The Explicit Gospel I Commend to You. It's also out in the hallway in the resource center out there. But in the the explicit gospel, he says this, and this may stretch us a little bit. He says, the great message that we call the gospel begins not with us or our need or even the meeting of that need, but it begins with the writer of the news and the center of his heralds. It begins with God himself. He goes on, here's my point. What if the Bible is not about us at all? What if we are not the story of God's revelation? And he gets really profound. He says, the Bible is for us, but it is not about us. Well, that one's thinking, the Bible is for us, but it's not about us. He goes, from beginning to end, the scriptures reveal that the foremost desire of God's heart is not our salvation, but rather the glory of his own name. God's glory is what drives the universe. It is why everything exists. And this is fascinating. He says, the world is not present, spinning and sailing in the universe, so that you and I might be saved or lost. The world is not present, spinning, and sailing in the universe so that you and I might be saved or lost, but so that God might be glorified in his infinite perfections. Friends, the Bible is for us, but it's not about us. It is rather about the glory of God. And the beginning of this prayer, this high priestly prayer, shows that to be true. Look back at verses 1 through 5 and notice the terminology and the focus as Jesus begins talking to the Father and we listen in. Look at what is on his heart and his mind with the cross in view. 
Back in verse 1. When Jesus has spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. What does he want to happen here? What's the next word? Glorify your son, that the son may do what? Glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I did what? Glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, what's the next word? Glorify me in your own presence with the what? With the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The main word here is what? Glory. glory. Not our glory but the glory of God in this. Everything in the universe, including us, our life, our salvation, is all for the glory of God. It is not primarily about us. Now, if I can remind us what we talked about back in John 12, way back in November, what does glory mean? It's a word we use a lot, but what does it mean to have glory? Glory is God's splendor. Glory is God's magnificence. Glory is God's greatness on display. It's the brightness of all of God's attributes. And just to remind us, when we talk about God being glorified, We're not talking about adding anything to God's glory. God's glory is full. There's nothing we can do to add to God's glory. God is unchanging in all ways, and so his glory cannot increase or decrease. He's fully glorious all the time. In fact, we see a hint of that here in verse 5. Look back, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus has always been as glorious as he was then and he is now. He is fully glorious all the time. So we talk about this desire for God to be glorified, the prayer for God to be glorified. What we're really praying for is God's glory and greatness to be seen, for his glory and greatness to be on display, for people to marvel at the splendor of the king of the universe. And I want you to see that in these first few verses. Notice the flow of thought here in these first three verses of this text. Back in verse 1, when Jesus has spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father... The hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. So what is Jesus' only request here to the Father right now is that he would be glorified, but not for himself. He wants to be glorified. He wants to go to the cross so that the Father would be glorified. How is the Father going to be glorified? How does Jesus want to see the Father glorified? Now the flow of thought continues. Verse 2. Since you have given him, Jesus speaking himself, since you've given me, he's saying, authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you had given him. So how is the Father going to be glorified as Christ is praying here? The Father is going to be glorified as people on earth experience eternal life. Eternal life is, what type of life is it going to be that's going to give God glory? Verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So don't miss the flow of thought here. Jesus' ultimate desire is not our happiness. His ultimate desire is not for us to get from birth to death in the easiest way possible. Jesus' ultimate desire in prayer is the glory of the Father. And how does he want to see the Father glorified? By himself, Jesus giving eternal life to other people that they might know God, know who God is, as he's revealed himself to be, know truths about God, but know him in an experiential, personal way. And as people have that type of eternal life where they know the truth of God, not who they've imagined God to be, but who God has revealed himself to be, as they know him and experience him and walk intimately with him, that brings God great glory. And how is all that possible? Verse 4. As Jesus said, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. It's possible because of what Christ is doing. As he's certainly approaching the cross in the next 24 hours, he is going to be glorified on what to the world looks like shame. And God's eyes are going to be glorious because he's making a way for us to have eternal life that we too might join in glorifying God. And there on the cross, Jesus makes a way for us to know God and for us to know who he is and to experience him, and ultimately for us to also to join Jesus in bringing glory to the Father. 
So friends, I believe John 17 shows us that God calls us to know him, not primarily for our sake, but yeah, we're thankful for he has done this for us, but it's primarily, ultimately, about his own glory. God calls us to know him for his own glory. But what do we do with this? Like I say, week after week, the gospel of John demands a response. And so the first response would be, if you've never trusted Christ, friends, it's got to start there. You're not going to glorify God with your life until you bow the knee and confess that he is the God who has created the universe and the God who has revealed himself in the pages of Scripture. If you've never experienced saving grace in Christ, my prayer for you is verse 8, where Jesus prays. He says, For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they received them. They come to know in truth that I came from you. They believe that you sent me. If you've never trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, my prayer for you this morning is verse 8 here, that you would receive the words that Jesus has spoken, that you would come to know in truth that Jesus came from the Father to die on the cross for your sins and to rise again so that you might have a life that glorifies God and that you would believe that the Father sent Jesus to do that. That's my prayer for you if you're not a believer. But if you are a believer, what does this text require of you? It requires us to ask three questions about ourselves and about our experience with the Lord. First of all, am I seeking to know God for who he's revealed himself to be? Friends, it is so easy, even with access to God's word, the pages of Holy Scripture, we can have the Bible on our phones, we have copies of the Bible everywhere, we can get it just about everywhere we turn. It is so easy for us to neglect this and to try to follow a God of our own imagination. Again, you hear it in Christian thought all the time. I can never imagine how God would dot, 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 fill in the blank right there. Are we seeking to know God as he's revealed himself to us? And he could reveal himself any way he wants to be. He chose to reveal himself in writing in the pages of Holy Scripture. So friends, are we studying it? Are we reading it? Are we thinking deeply about it? How much time do we spend looking at the revelation of God, of who he is, so that we might know who he is and the truth and the greatness of our great God? Are we, like we said just a few weeks ago, are we prayerfully asking the Spirit of God to make plain to us and clear to us the words of Scripture, and are we spending time with it? So remember, knowing God, we have to know about him. So are we seeking him and his word? But the second question is, am I seeking daily to experience him as well? Because it's not enough to know about him. The truth is there so that we might know him. And so am I experiencing his, an intimate relationship with him? Not just do I have my theology right, but do I have an experience of his presence? Am I praying to him? Am I talking to him? Am I sensing his Holy Spirit? Is the Spirit of God leading me? Am I finding peace and joy in all of life's storms? Because I have God abiding and dwelling right there with me. So I think this text makes us ask, am I studying the word of God? Am I seeking to know God for who he is? Am I praying? Am I experiencing the fullness of the Holy Spirit? Am I abiding in him? And I think this text for us as believers makes us ask a third question. And that is, am I living my life for myself or for God's glory? Am I living my life for myself or for God's glory? Friends, if someone was to take a look at what you and I talk about and how we live and what our calendars show, what our financial records show, and what I post on social media and how I use my time, what is all that going to show? Is it about me or is it about the glory of God? Are we seeking to bring God glory? Is that our desire? Or are we seeking to bring self-glory? And listen to what Jesus said as he began his prayer. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hours come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Friends, God calls us to know him for his own glory. Would you pray with me? Father God, we are so thankful that you've not left us without revelation. God, you've not left us in the dark wondering who you are and how we might find our way to you. But God, in your infinite kindness to us, God, you gave us your word. You've shown us who you are. You've not hidden yourself from us. 
Father, for those of us in this room who are believers, we just want to celebrate this morning that in your kindness to us, you chose us, you called us, not because of anything in us, that in your kindness you gave us, Father, to Jesus, that he might redeem us and he might manifest himself to us, to manifest your name to us. And God, I pray for myself and these precious brothers and sisters that, God, this week you would stir our hearts with thankfulness that you have made clear to us, you have revealed to us who you are. And God, would you stir in my heart and the heart of these brothers and sisters this week a hunger to go deeper in knowing who you are. Father, I'm convinced that millions of years from now is, is we're just beginning to taste eternity and that we'll still be not ceasing to learn more of who you are. You are so infinite, so vast, so eternal, so big that we can study every moment every day and never cease to discover new things about you. And God, I pray you would stir our hearts about this week, that we would not be a people who claim to be followers of Christ but leave our Bibles stuck on the shelves not digging deeper into it. God, would you increase our hunger to want to know more of the truth about who you are. But God, may we be a people who do not stop there. God, we need grace upon grace upon grace to have desires, to have affections, to experience you, to walk intimately with you, to abide with you, to sense your Holy Spirit speaking and guiding and pushing us and convicting us and challenging us and growing us and letting us sense your nearness. So God, would you give us grace this week to be a people who go deeper in knowing about you, but who go deeper in experiencing you as well that we might have, what it says here in John 17, that we might have eternal life. Not just the hope of heaven in the future as real as that is, but that we might have today the experience of your presence, not who we imagine you to be, but who you've revealed yourself to be. And God, I'm convinced that as that happens in our lives, God, the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. God, would you give us grace this week to not live for ourselves, to not make much about self, but to make much about you. Whether we're at school, whether we're at work, whether we're at Walmart, whether we're driving down there, wherever we find ourselves, at home interacting with the kids, talking to the neighbors down the street, whatever it may be, God, would you give us grace to be a people who have gone so deep in knowing about you and so deep in experiencing you that we cannot help but talk about your greatness this week. May we be a people who cannot help but talk about your glory and your splendor and your beauty and your majesty. And to pray those around us might take notice, not for us, Lord, but for your sake. Lord, I pray at the end of this week when we gather next Sunday, we'll come in with hearts full and hearts rejoicing at what you've done in us and through us this week. And that our prayer and our praise when we gather next Sunday morning will be the same as what the psalmist said in Psalm 115. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Or would you work in us this week in these ways, Lord, for your sake, for the sake of your love and your name being known around Montgomery and throughout the world, We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing our closing song?